LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is James Swagger. He was the author of the book, The New Grange, Serious Mystery, linking passage grave cosmology with Dogon symbology. James was first introduced to topical science writing for a historical mysteries magazine in Ireland. This whetted his appetite for researching ancient knowledge and lost science, and he initially sought out the megalithic monuments of Western Europe in his spare time. His embrace of a multidisciplinary approach to the research of megalithic sites and the larger view of passage grave cosmology produced the New Grange Serious Mystery, which is James' first book. He's currently working on a follow-up and explores other historical mysteries on his own internet radio show, Capricorn Radio. Hello and welcome, James, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi, Greg. It's great to be here and to all the listeners. Now, James, uh, we're here today and we're going to talk about your book, uh, The New Grange Serious Mystery, uh, subtitle Linking Passage Grave Cosmology with Dogon Symbology. Now, there's a lot of terms in there that people may not be immediately familiar with. So perhaps you could tell people, first of all, a little bit about your background and how you came to be involved in this subject, and then perhaps just set out a sort of summary of the, the contents of the book before we dive into the detail. Sure. Um, well, my background is predominantly as a systems analyst in the energy industry. Um, what that would invo- involve would be high-tech computer systems running large machinery, if you want to call it that, high-tech electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, electromechanical systems. Um, I found myself looking at the mysteries at the megaliths because I wrote a historical histories magazine and I wanted to compile some articles to maybe write a little encyclopedia of them in a book. That was my thinking anyway. And I came to the chapter on megaliths. That was, you know, it was just something I wanted to browse through, you know, and I've, I've seen a lot of megalithic sites because I've naturally traveled that terrain for work and they in remote places and I've always sought out a megalithic site whether it be a stone circle, uh, passage grave, standing stones, stone rows and the British Isles is rife with these uh, man-made structures from the 3000 BC era but I never saw much of the the puzzle of the mystery I thought it was all convoluted and very hard to figure out and whatever was figured out was all sewn up already but I found myself back there in the north of Ireland and uh, for a very specific uh, reason, like I actually had just gone off a tangent there, I actually pulled out, I bought a, a first edition of an, uh, a history of astronomy book, uh, and inside it was an article from a new scientist magazine in 1976, and I had this uh, ancient site in the north of Ireland, Donegal, uh, with a place called Ardmore with standing stone and rock art on it. So uh, I just thought I would make the journey over there to have a look at it. And uh, when I did so, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at the rock art and it didn't make sense to me. It wasn't what I was looking at. It wasn't what I was told. And it, and it looked like uh, constellations. And I went back home and I and for me, you know, like, you know, I, I looked at it and I deciphered it. And then for me, it was the Ursa Majors constellation. And I just I went into that systems analyst mode, I guess. That's that's the thing. So that my background kicked in. My my I applied my engineering uh, skill set to uh, a problem that was in face in front of me that I just naturally randomly turned up to have a look at. And before I knew it, I was getting suckered into this mystery of the megaliths that, you know, this isn't all figured out. Not everybody knows things. There's stuff there still to write and to be discovered. And this is only going back a few years, Greg, you know, this this last piece of the puzzle of this uh, deciphered rock art. Um, it's called the, I call it the Ardmore Equinox Stone, and it's in the book. Um, and the thing is, I mean, I went back home and I went, okay, let's look up this Ardmore rock art. And somebody had incorrectly deciphered it as the constellation of uh, Draco. And it's just not there. It's it's wrong. It's it's. They've even copyrighted uh, an image that's like 3,000 years old. You can't do that. You can't copyright your your own. You can't copyright rock art. You just can't do that. Like it's, if that's your interpretation, that's okay. It's, if you ask me, the interpretation is actually made up. It's it's a bit fanciful. So they can copyright what they want. I don't see it, and I, I and I have had this on chat forums, and everybody is just amazed that this stuff uh, is sitting there. And it's basically the Ursa Major and the Ursa Minor constellations, and they're sitting there flipping each other's image six months apart on the spring and autumn equinox, which is another important factor. The the top of the stone has a notch on it as well to simulate this effect that it's a six-month equinoctial marker, which is why I call it the Ardmore Equinox Stone, and they're using these two constellations to do this. So I was totally gobsmacked at this point that, you know, this is, has has escaped people. And, uh, and yeah, it is just one standing stone with a bit of rock art, but the key thing is there's not a lot of rock art depicting constellations in the British Isles or the megalithic civilization of Western Europe. So that in itself is a very key feature um, of, the, of, the, of the mystery. So I spurred me on to go and look at some other places. Now, I think that would be the biggest revelation in terms of outstanding in front of you to be deciphered, yeah? I haven't you know, uncovered anything else that's really kind of dominantly outstanding that other people haven't remarked on. But uh, you know, I've gone into this passage grape cosmology that I call it, and, and I, I've honed in on passage graves because of they contain a lot of rock art in Ireland. So there I found myself uh, exploring the science um, of astronomy applied to 3000 BC, or uh, you know, incorporating my systems analyst approach to, to uh, solutions and problems. Like you mentioned, a lot of what you're dealing with are the passage graves, as you say, uh, which are not just in Ireland, they're all around Europe. Uh, sure. But um, a lot of people will know them as basically the megalithic burial mounds. And that kind of also tells us what people mostly think they are. And uh, I remember growing up and learning about these at school, uh, most famous example in Ireland being Newgrange. And, sure. and I basically came away from the lesson with the overarching impression that these are basically just graves at the end of the day. Yes, they're elaborate. Some of them have, appear to have some sort of astrological function, but they're basically graves. Now, this is about as sensible as them saying that the Great Pyramids in Egypt were just tombs. I mean, I never bought that. I, I don't know why. I just instinctively mm -hmm. didn't. And then, of course, it turned out later that they were very much far from being just tombs. Sure. That's a very good point and a good, very good comparison there, Greg. I like that because, you know, 
the thing about the uh, the tomb theory is they it's just what the archaeologists they ramp it out as you know this is tombs nothing else to look at here we're the archaeologists we've dug up the bones we've seen what they are nothing else to see here the case closed and that's what they want to do and the problem is they never hired astronomers Greg to come and look at this stuff they never ha- hired acousticians to come and look at the inside of the things which we'll get into later but you know I find it hard to believe in this day and age that if something is so accurately and astronomically aligned I mean, we're talking advanced astronomy, like, you know, not just the beam of sunlight coming inside the chamber, what it's famous for. I mean, the nose passage grave beside it seems to calculate two variations of the, the synodic lunar month and the sidereal lunar month. Now, they're two decimal figures, like, one's 27.3 and one's 29.5, close enough, like. And there's evidence to, to show that I show in the book, like, that that's probably the case like you know and it's not just about the sun and the moon they're they're calculating advanced astronomy so for me these places are astronomical observatories first and foremost that was their primary purpose the secondary function was they buried the dead inside now when i say buried the dead they're called burial mounds they didn't actually bury them they cremated them outside and left their ashes inside so again they're always attributed to this burial function and that's the key thing you know that's just not that's giving one half of the puzzle and forgetting about the most important half. And as a result, I guess, you know, it's a misnomer. And I often liken it. These places were like a center of knowledge, a center of learning, um, you know, and we're only coming to terms with it now in, in very recent years, Greg. I think that's the thing. And, and that's a very good point. You know, they're not tombs. They're not just tombs. Um, there may have been some spiritual aspect to that. Um, I'm going into that in my sequel, uh, my second book. But, I've concentrated on that book, The New Grain Serious Mystery, um, because there's links to the star Sirius and there's links to the Dogon tribe. Um, Sirius is very important in, in the ancient world to a lot of tribes. Um, and it's the perhaps the pinnacle of the astronomy that occurred in Ireland. So that's why I've called it The New Grain Serious Mystery. I start the book with New Grange and I finish the book with New Grange, but it's a journey of passage graves of Ireland first and foremost. And I step outside sometimes to other passage graves. So I guess that would kind of give you the idea of the astronomy versus the burial function and combine both together. But it's wrong to separate them too, Greg, I guess. I don't want to separate the, the funerary function. But uh, I should just say, and I'll finish on this, that you know, archaeologists have this slogan, and I, and I quote it in the book, that they reckon if you can't dig up the past, you can't know about the past. Um, and there's one uh, author in Ireland, that it's, she's an American archaeologist, and she wrote about the Lock Crew passage graves, and that's what she literally quotes in her book. And that's just not true anymore, because we have this science of archaeoastronomy, a mixture of archaeology and astronomy, to figure things out. And you can get very accurate alignments. Now, it's not just the passage graves of Ireland. Archaeoastronomy is now a fully-fledged academic institution and worldwide uh, phenomenon, like, and it's been applied to cultures... 1500 BC and beyond, because everything beyond 1500 BC seems to have an astronomical alignment. So, actually tie in the astronomy and the burial function as a, as a bit of an enlightenment um, for anybody listening, Greg. Okay, now we're using the term megalithic a great deal, and we should just point out that uh, we're not referring to a, a particular people as such, or a civilization that's completely coherent in the way that, so you have the sort of Roman civilization or Greek civilization, these megalithic structures were constructed over a long, quite a long period of time, taking in the Neolithic, which is so-called New Stone Age, right through the Bronze Age as well. 
And but again, as we said earlier, all over Europe, so quite a, a large, widespread network of uh, construction, and yet we know so little um, about the people who were uh, behind us. It's almost like that gag in Spinal Tap about the druids. You know, no one knew who, <laughs> who they were or what they were doing. Yeah, you know, that's the thing, Greg. You know, like you know, people say Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, and then some people say Neolithic Age, and then. Some people refer to it as the megalithic civilization and their era, but you know, the Bronze Age, Stone Age, and first and foremost, the, and the Iron Age, they're a bit of misnomers because there's evidence now that silver was being produced in 1000 BC because they found silver braiding in, in the hairs of Celts uh, with wax that came from Spain as well. So they were traversing long distances. So, you know, this idea of metallurgy typifying a certain time frame in bc year is like either iron age or and stone age like you know that's it, it's a bit of a misnomer you know to be using those terms of iron age stone age and uh, a neolithic is probably better because it's given you two dates to work between between a certain date and a certain date and neolithic really means megalithic really it's, it's pretty much very little in the difference megalithic is the people that lived in the neolithic age so again it's it's it gets bandied about a bit but for most intensive purposes the megalithic civilization really appeared from nowhere in about 3000 bc is a, they're usually quoted as 3000 bc 3500 to 3000 bc um and it's pretty much, uh, if you even look at the Stonehenge as a Neolithic, megalithic monument, it kind of came into existence at 2500 BC, accepted uh, mainstream dating, and last building construction was about 1600 BC. So you're talking 3000 to 1500 BC is really the megalithic civilization. That's the time frame we're talking about from its peak. I mean, it peaked at the beginning. That That's the problem, you know, Greg. It peaked at 3000 BC and descended into chaos. Um and then again, the Celts inherited uh, the tail end of the megalithic civilization. Indeed, we have some old Celtic tales, legends, mythology that refer to the megalithic civilization as the Tuatha de Danann, the builders of the megalithic monuments. And Tuatha de Danann is Gaelic for uh, other race of people. So, you know, that kind of tie up the megalithic era, um, what we're talking about. But just for the for the listeners, Greg, you know, megalithic civilization. We're talking the guys that you built Stonehenge, the guys that built passage graves, they used earth and stone and uh, traversed like long distances with quarried materials to build complex structures like. As you say, they they travelled long distances within their own sort of regions and countries to gather materials. You mentioned earlier about the silver uh, being discovered along with wax that had come from Spain. So people at this time were mo- moving around by sea a lot more than people imagine, I think. Um, yeah. And yet there are differences. There's a lot of similarities in these megalithic constructions in different areas, but there's also local things that are that, that are only appear that, in that particular area, as it were. That's right, Greg. That's right. You know, that's a good point as well. You know that. Um, I just I just tell you where I get that silver braiding in the hair and the and the Celts. I mean, that came from bog bodies found in uh, Donegal, where they found the uh, the Celts when they captured the uh, warring tribes. They would. Uh, decapitate them and bury them in bogs so that they went to the underworld and their bodies would never decay. So sometimes bog bodies get uncovered. You get them in Yorkshire quite a lot in your terrain where you're at now, but uh, uh, when they're in the bogs, the they peat and the bogs preserve the body. Um, and sometimes they, they skin, the fingernails are all intact. They can get the dirt from under the fingernail and do DNA testing on the hair. Um, and some t- even the hair will 
uh, and the braiding in the hair was uh, and the skin of the face almost mummified even if you want like so that's where I get that from and that was a very shocking finding at the time that they were had like silver braiding in the hair going back that far like you know and, and this guy that was captured uh, had manicured fingernails he had expensive like uh, hard to produce wax for his hair and stuff like you know so just even in around that time frame in in 1000 BC, like traveling by boat was like the seaways of the the motorways of the day. Um, now, when you go back to the 3000 BC era, I'd like to think that these guys traversed to all these places to and from each other, but I don't think it was a wide or worldwide navigation system. I don't think they just traveled wherever they wanted. It's not as it's not as widespread as that because you don't see the exact same theme replicated in each place and that's what you were picking up on there you know there's local information at one site that's got like art but it's not the same as another place um the theme of the passage grave is always the same it's it's a mound it's got curb stones it's usually circular um and the passageway leads to a large inner chamber um but like i mean i've been all over western europe and i've looked at the variations in style and design um but then it's not just variations of style and design because the Danish ones lack art. They have no art at all. So these guys didn't have artisans over there. Or if they had artisans, they weren't working and uh, they didn't want to apply the art. So maybe they had a different reason for that. Who knows? You know, again, they're always on coastlines. It's the Western European coastline. So that should tell you something there. Um, also, in the book, I've tailed towards the end I've speculated a little bit and I've researched the work of a guy called Philip Coppins and you know he's talked about the Hyperboreans and the Greeks referred to the the Greeks were well versed with the Celtic civilization by the way even the word Britain comes from the Greeks which means uh, the Pretanics P-R-E-T-A-N-N-I-K-S and they were referred to the Celtic people that inhabited the British Isles the Pretanics and when the Greeks sailed around the uh, English Channel they could see onto land and see almost like Braveheart, Greg. Yeah, where you would see they would be chanting at the people on the boats, "Come, come, try and land your boat, and we'll take you on." Basically, you know, and they were beating their chests and shaking their, uh, shaking their batons and their and their shields and their armor with their war paint on them, like. And that's why they called them the Pretonics. That's why the Greeks never went to the British Isles, like. And again, it took the Romans to to take them on. But the point is that the Greeks were well aware of details of the British Isles. Um, which not a people, a lot of people know that. So they referred to them as the Britannics, which then became Britannica, and then Britain, and the and the whole. So that's where the origins of the word Britain comes from. Now the Greeks were also aware of a group of people called the Hyperboreans. Now the Hyperboreans were had this temple in the north. Now when they referred to something in the north, it was outside outside their known domain, which most likely was either latitudes of the north of Ireland, Scotland somewhere up that terrain, Sweden, Norway, that's what they meant by the north, northern latitudes, that high north. Like. Now, there's evidence that when they talked about this temple, the Hyperborean temple, it probably, typically, and I put money on it, that it refers to the Callanish Stone Temple in uh, the Outer Hebridean island of Scotland, uh, up uh, north of Stornoway, from uh, the capital of Stornoway, 15 miles from there. And there's very good reasons for that, because they say that the island that it's on is, it's first of all on an island, so that narrows it down. The island is the size of uh, Sardinia, uh, the geographic landmass size, similar size to Sardinia. It's only at a latitude where the Pleiades sets, and it's aligned to the Pleiades, on a, 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 and that only happens at that exact line of latitude. Um, 
again, so there is no other place that fits the description when you calculate all the data. Um, again, you're applying astronomy to figure out where this hyperborean temple is. So, you know, the Greeks knew about these people, like, and the thing is that these hyperboreans, the, the story that the Greeks left us, like, uh, is that the hyperboreans traveled by boats. They were a black uh, race. Now, whether they were black haired or black skinned, that that's what they did. They came by boat. They were, uh, it's, it's typically accepted that they were black skinned, that uh, predominantly African uh, in, in origin. Um, and that they came by boat with their stones to build this temple. Now, there's links between Kalanish. Kalanish was known in the megalithic world. So if you take Britain and Ireland and the megalithic civilization, and indeed Brittany, these guys built similar monuments. Uh, again, Gavrinus Passage Grave is very similar to Newgrange. Uh, it's Gavrinus in Brittany has actually got the most uh, art. So Brittany's like a megalithic theme park. It's got all the art. It's got the Passage Graves. It's got gigantic stones. Uh, Ireland's got 40% of the rock art of Western Europe alone at the Newgrange complex site. So, you know, this is why the reason I've concentrated my efforts in Ireland, although I have expanded outside Ireland and I've researched a lot of stuff outside Ireland that I haven't put in the Newgrange serious mystery. So I guess that builds a picture. These guys, we're traversing by boat. We have one lit literary reference to that. Um, but again, you have to do it like, an, it's not just going... The megalithic guys built these things and traveled by boat. It's not like that. You have to be like an investigative journalist to prove that the case. Now, I welcome people to go and research that themselves and find that out independently. But for me, they often report that these guys lived by the coast because they had a rich seafood diet that they, that they needed. And that's just wrong. That's an assumption. My research tends me to believe these guys were traveling by boat. They were well able to do it. Um, I actually think they came by boat, put my money on it, 4000 BC, sunken landmass. Uh, I go into that at the end again, that they came by boats uh, from maybe rising sea levels, cataclysms, whatever, and they hit the western west of Europe and they set their civilization up again. It explains why you have artisans here, different building styles, different construction techniques. Not everybody had a piece of the puzzle, but all the pieces of the puzzle fit this common theme. Now, talking about... Hyperborea and, and then Kalanish being coming from Greek myth. Of course, there's a lot of uh, people say, well, these myths are not actually myths at all. It's just a, it's a story. And one famous Greek myth that a lot of people have contended is not a myth is that of Atlantis. And I mentioned this because you mentioned the work of Philip Coppins, um, sure. who sadly passed away recently. And he was actually, um, yeah. spookily enough, he was due to come on here with me. And uh, five minutes before um, he was due. I got an email from him just saying I've, I've suddenly been taken ill. I'm sorry, I can't do it. But we were going to talk about his book, uh, The Lost Civilization Enigma. And you mentioned Karnak in France there. And Philip Coppins had that down as his most likely site for Atlantis, actually. And he was referring back to Greek mythology when he was working that out. Sure. I have a lot of respect for Philip. Philip was actually in collaboration with me for my sequel on uh just uh, some loose emails, general guidance, um, because I had researched some of his research, basically. And I asked him for sources, and, you know, he, he, he's a very prolific researcher. He was very tenacious and, and, and very logical, uh, if you want to call it that, you know. So um, a lot of respect for Philip. Uh, again, sad to hear him. I, I, he had a strange, rare cancer, something like one in 200 people ever in America has got it, like, mm. you know, so... 
it's a big loss like yeah but Philip had done an awful lot of work on the megaliths and uh, I mean many other things on Atlantis like and for even for myself you know I'm a secret Atlantis hunter you know I'd like to put my money and go I found Atlantis like uh, who wouldn't like you know uh, for me that's the appealing and the alluring aspect of the mystery of history that is um, rampant about all of uh, civilizations like I mean China India, the Vedic civilization, ancient Egypt, you know, ancient Egypt have references to Atlantis too, like, um, you know, wh where do these civilizations all appear around the globe at 3000 BC? Again, the megaliths in Brittany seems to be like the largest collection of megaliths in one terrain domain, probably second only to the Ireland, you know, so... Um, well, Philip, Philip had them, he explained it how they were radiating outwards over these vast areas of, of this area of France, and mm -hmm. he was basically... You, you comparing that with uh, classical descriptions of Atlantis. So he's trying to make a physical comparison, say, okay, if we do take this Greek literally. description here, as literally as we can, is there anything we could map this onto? And uh, the work that he did uh, in Karnak was quite significant, I thought. So certainly I thought it was worth pursuing more. Sure. I'm actually going to be there in about three weeks. I'm uh, going back to Gavrinus Passage for a photo shoot, uh, some more acoustic measurements just for additional information. And, uh, you know, it's it's it, the mind boggles at the place because there's stuff there that I won't. I'm only concentrating on Passage Graves for the, the work of the book, but I'm well versed in other areas of megalithics anomalies in terms of geomancy, uh, origins of the megalithic civilization, um, some speculation, some loose evidence very hard to put the puzzle together Greg but there's also uh, evidence that in Karnak that the standing rows they're called the alignments they're not very original in their naming but they're just called the alignments because there's 3,000 standing stones now they're six foot above the ground they're probably six foot into the ground as well you two or three people have to put their arms around some of these things they're gigantic stones and they're standing all about a few feet from each other in stone rows and then there's another row beside that row and there's like 3,000 of these yeah all in the one locale but when you look at them from the air and and look down upon them in a 2d plan you're looking at a, a, a three four five pythagorean triangle a very uh fundamental mathematical triangle and um, typical of the basis of most geometry yeah it's the foundation of all mathematics really the three four five triangle um and it's called the pythagorean triangle because pythagoras was supposedly have to invent it but there it is incorporated into megalithic monuments so there's many anomalies and there's many weird things going on at Karnak. Um, um, I don't know if I would attribute it to the home of Atlantis. Um, I think Atlantis definitely, there's, if, you, if you go off the coast of Spain and France, really, uh, into the Azores Plateau, there's sunken landmasses there, like uh, sunken islands. There's also a sunken island off the coast of Ireland in Cork called uh, Porcupine Bank. Um, which going back to a time in before 4000 BC, possibly as late as 10,000 BC, uh, there's those, those are two very key dates in rising sea levels, by the way. Um, I like to think that you know it, it was out there. Uh, the reason I refer to that, there's maps showing uh, Porcupine Bank, it's sometimes referred to as the other Atlantis, so. I think that's probably, for me, I would have to put my money on that. It's about 100 miles off the coast of Cork. It's called Porcupine Bank, and they call it Porcupine Bank because the sand bank, when you take a cross profile off it, it looks like the back of a porcupine. 
So it looks like a porcupine's ridged back, basically, when you look at the cross profile of it. Now, porcupine banks about what is about 80 meters beneath the, the sea, this present sea level. So you don't have to go too far down uh, before you hit porcupine bank. So the last time that sea level was there, it's another science into itself. But uh, it was above sea level at one point. It would have been about the size of uh, Greater London, 20 miles diameter. Um, so it was an appreciable size of land. Now, there's ancient maps, uh, many of them, depicting this landmass called... Uh, uh, High Brazil, they call it, which in Gaelic that comes from the term E Brazil, U I B R E A S A I L, which means of the clan Brazil. And uh, so High Brazil with an S, not with a Z, um, really comes from the Gaelic E Brazil. Um, and for me, that's the Atlantis, you know, that's that's one. I don't think Atlantis was one, uh, I think all across the Atlantic there would have been sunken land masses. There's a big ridge in the Atlantic as well. So I think the Atlantis that maybe hit Karnak was probably a part of the Irish one as well. And the and the uh and another point worth noting is that the Celtic mythology also refers as the Tuatatanan coming from the Western Seas. Uh, the people that built the Megalith came from the Western Seas, but we don't know of anything there because it's beneath the waves. The next next stop is America, 5,000 kilometers. So I guess that kind of roundabout way answers some of your question, but not totally in agreement with Philip. But I think for me, high Brazil, I guess, you know. So in a way that if we think about all the deluge myths and legends that there are in cultures all over the world, and a lot mm-hmm. of researchers now accept that they may have been talking about one deluge, the same event, uh, we can almost take the Atlantis situation and kind of flip that logic on its head or that you know, calculation on its head and say that Atlantis wasn't one place. It was actually a lot of different events. It's just, a, But it's a, a collective memory of a, of a, a deluge and a sunken landmass. Sure. You know, and, and here's the thing, you know, all these myths around the world, I think I, uh, it's hard to pinpoint one source for Atlantis because there's many people think Lemuria in Asia and there's other people think it's somewhere near South America, the Caribbean, and there's sunken places all around the globe. So I think Atlantis could have been a rising sea level problem. Um, I think Atlantis could have been a network of islands. So, you know, I think it's wrong to typify it to one place. And that's not an escapism there for an answer either. Uh, you know, that's just for me. I, I just think there's, there's too many accounts and, and, and credible accounts too at that, Greg. Um, so I think if we then, if we took the little leap of logic and just say, forget about Atlantis being one fixed place and just that Atlantis was happening all over the place. Yeah, you know, I, I've gone in, I have another publication, Greg, that I, it's sitting on the shelf, it's it's almost finished, <laughs> it's going to be almost finished for another year, because I, I, I have to go and write, my, I finish off this Newgrange Acoustic sequel, but my other book is called A Hidden History, Secret of Science, and in it, it's a compilation, that, as I was telling you about this, encyclopedia of historical mysteries, that I used to write for Historical Histories magazine, um, so I'm well versed in other ancient histories, anomalies, yeah, Um Probably the ancient Egyptian civilization, the Babylonian, and like I'm well versed in a lot of Mayan and Central American civilization, all these other things. But there's one thing that keeps cropping up time and time again, and this is where it ties in, Greg, is that there's this ancient transoceanic contact. Um, and what I mean by that is there's, there's evidence like, I mean, if you talk about the cocaine mummies of Egypt, there's evidence that mummies in Egypt have cocaine and tobacco in their hair. And a German uh, scientist, um, 
took uh, DNA sampling of the mummy's hairs. Now, they do this anyway. She wasn't looking for a toxicology report to find this out. She stumbled upon it, and she released her findings, and she was rubbished by Egyptology. But now, Egyptologists never gave her an apology. Eventually, after a 14-year saga, they admitted there was, quote, rudimentary contact with the Americas. What that means is a bit of nonsense, because it's not just one account. You have... The Phoenicians were known to be seafarers in the ancient times. Um, there's links to them with uh, some of their glyph writing is similar to the Vedic civilization, which means they had to sail around Africa or else go over terrain. But they were seafarers, so they most likely had to go around the Horn of Africa and get to India that way, which is, is outstanding. There's evidence of Phoenician writing in Brazil. Also, the Phoenicians were referred to as the purple people. That's what Phoenicia means. The, the, and they were purple people because their dyed costumes were purple. Now, the reason they made this purple costume was uh, they crushed up this purple seashell um, to make their purple dye for their purple robes. Uh, and this was like their seafarer's uniform, their captain's uniform, if you want to call it that, um, which would have been some woven fabric dyed purple. The problem is the Toltecs in Central America, used this same, they were seafarers, and they used this same seashell to make their purple dye for their robes. Yeah? There's other forms of purple dye. The point is, it's these two very specific processes. Not only that, you have similar metallurgical concepts appearing in South America and in Egypt. You have uh, masonry joined together with iron or metallurgical uh, produced straps. Now, um, the Acapana Pyramid in Bolivia has got these, uh, what they call them, eye-shaped. They're in the shape of letter I, and they're molten and poured into joints that are carved out. They're almost like earth-bonding straps in electrical systems. They're not like any structural feature, but they appear in ancient Egypt as well. You know, So you have these strange, specific, anomalous evidences cropping up in these features. You also have the most obvious one of the Mayans both built pyramids with the Egyptians. They both had acoustics built into the pyramids. They both had advanced astronomy built into the pyramids. Um, you know, so you got these places that are supposed to be isolated in time frames. You know, ancient China, again, uh, 3000 BC, building pyramids. There's, there's probably more pyramids in China than anywhere else in the world, but there's a blockage on people getting the information out. You know, there's very little footage of these pyramids existing. Even the Chinese government have planted trees. So I guess the, the point is that, you know, this trans-oceanic contact, the evidence is there, but it's fragmented, um, but it's rigid, and it's logical, and it's well thought out, and, and, and it's inescapable, like, you know, so ancient cultures, and the megalithic's no different, I think, you know, there's evidence of an ancient culture, sunken land masses, I think civilization had to start again. And it's probably why it all kicked off again in 3000 BC, because it doesn't explain why 3000 BC, you got civilizations popping up at the same time all around the globe. Mummification is another one. Uh, South America, mummification. Siberia, mummies found. China, there's the Tower of Mummies, which are of genetic European stock. Uh, in um, a lot of places you find these pyramids, you find mummification as well. Egypt's well known for it, but it's not the only example. Aztecs as well. Um, there's the Aztec mummies on. It's strange that we have these strange elongated skulls. There's another one where they actually bind the child's head and elongate their skull. Um, so, and I did this for a chart in the in the digital publication that where you find 
pyramids, you usually find either elongated skulls or mummification. Sometimes you find all three. You know, you usually find two of the three in all these places. Like, and and the Azores Plateau in the in the Tenerife Islands. Again, there's pyramids over there that people don't know about. Mummification over there as well. Well, this idea of um civilization starting again uh, presumably after some kind of um, disaster fits some of the historical timeline i know certainly um i had another geologist on uh, called robert shock who you're probably familiar with we were talking about gobekli tepe in turkey and how i'm, go- ancient- I'm going there i'm going there next week Craig. oh that, that sounds fantastic i wish i was coming with you but uh, the idea that that you know for just that being just one example but this enormously complex uh, well, complex uh, of c- c- buildings and, and, and monuments and what have you, sure. which was then deliberately buried at some point back then. And then you have all these stories of not only of deluge around that time, but also uh, <clears throat> what you, what I could basically sum up as a fire from the sky. So it could be some kind of, you know, um, you know, meteorites, asteroids, that sort of thing, which has certainly happened before. I mean, we, we've pretty much established now that that's what happened uh, to the planet's climate around the time that the dinosaurs died out. Sure, I think Robert might actually, Dr. Robert Shock might go into the plasma events and they actually may have melted the ice caps. Uh, I've gone into uh, Robert Shock's book, The Forgotten Civilization, uh, and that angle of it too, you know. But on the Gebekli Tepe thing, uh, yeah, I mean, it's deliberately buried that place, you know. But the most important thing is it's sitting there 10,000 BC. Um, it's right there, smack bang in the middle of this. Atlantean dating scheme that's kind of been typified as 10,000 BC area. Funny thing is, Ice Age uh, ended back then, you know, so what a, t- what a time for Plato, uh, the Greek, uh, to pick this story of Atlantis like 9,000 years ago uh, at the time of writing would put in the 10,000 BC era. So, you know, I think Gebekli Tepe is sitting there in that time frame, so that's kind of woken a lot of people up going, right, now we have one piece of evidence that's irrefutable yeah and it's only been discovered and it's only been investigated and it's still being uncovered it's got to take a long time they're only five percent into that place um so yeah i mean it's hard to speculate but i do i do agree with you on the deliberately burying and i think you know they could have been aware of a cataclysm they could have protected that they might have been wiped out they could have never got back to uncover it you know they could have been afraid of their their 20 stone temples getting uh, decimated for whatever reason, um, whether that would be a flood or I think it would probably be a solar event or, you know, getting burned by plasma or meteorites, you know. I, I don't know about the height of the place and, and, the, and the erosion from water or, you know, it depends on the, on the flooding. Like how could have been like tsunamis or anything like you don't know the devastation that went on in 10,000 BC when these uh, ice caps melted. I mean. I mean, something that's the size of the American landmass, like the North American landmass, is what melted. You know, so phenomenal amounts of water being released into the seas. Like people who perhaps look back and consider that you know, a lot of these stories must be myths because it's so, it's almost it's biblical <laughs> practically. You know, and it's and it's violence and destruction are perhaps not aware that if even we look at the data now that we're we're living generally speaking the last several thousand years through an unusually quiet point uh, in Earth's history from a point of view of geology and from of climate and also, um, you know, activity out there in the wider solar system. I kind of I kind of think that we're now living in an age where alternative history, uh, if you want to call it that, 
people are looking into the mysteries of these ancient civilizations that there's a regrouping process going on now. I mean, the last 20 years, people have, have been uncovering evidence, but it's going in all directions now. And I think people, and that's kind of where I want to concentrate and, and, and retract a bit, start grouping some of this stuff together and put some emphasis on it. And I think that's what we're now looking at because, for example, Robert Schock, um, when he talked about the Sphinx, the Egyptology uh, academic world just kind of laughed at him and said, where's the pot shards of this civilization like, you know, and Robert will talk about that himself like, um, you know, and he didn't have the pot shards, but that was besides the point. And I said that on my own podcast of Robert, that that was besides the point. It doesn't matter. Like he's proven geologically that, you know, water weathering, you know, pushes the time frame of the Sphinx back to what they're making out. And there's the Egyptology standpoint is guesswork and his is scientifically, <clears throat> scientifically proven. If you ask me, so he doesn't need to show the pot shards, but he now has them pot shards, and then pot shards is Gebekli Tepe. And Robert's doing the tour. He's asked me to come on the tour with him. I nearly cancelled my Gebekli Tepe trip next week to to go on the tour with Robert. I'd love to know and and meet up with him. I'm probably going to see him at Megalithomania as well in uh, in Glastonbury, like because he's speaking at that this year. So I'll definitely catch him there. And and uh, yeah, I'm interested in that. He wants to think about the acoustics. I, I know. Uh, He's delved into a little archaeoastronomy. He keeps his eye on a few other things, you know. He's not just a geologist. He likes to research a few other things, like, you know. But So you get a lot of people now that's been in this alternative history field that kind of regroup and they, they kind of carve a niche for themselves in their own research, which is what I've done. I, 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 I haven't jumped on the archaeoastronomy because I think that's very important, and the archaeoacoustics too. But the archaeoacoustics and the archaeoastronomy that I'm doing is in the one monument, so I'm naturally having to join the two together, Greg. I guess that's the, that's the point worth noting. There's a regrouping process. That's the main thing I'm trying to tell you, Greg, yeah? Yeah, and I think that for a long time, uh, since, you know, sort of classical, modern, uh, materialistic science has come to solidify, if you want to use that word, mm -hmm. it's been very much divided along sort of uh, specialism lines where you have biologists and physicists and chemists and sometimes researchers necessarily have to lapse over into one or the other discipline because it just because of their research or what they're working on but generally speaking it's like you do that you do that's your degree that's your specialism that's your doctorate whatever it mm -hmm. happens to be and you just stay there and you just leave you know we, we want to have our bit that we know about it's just like doctors and lawyers you know they can have their jargon and get highly paid so the rest of us got no idea what's going on but in the sort of research that you're doing and the people we've been talking about, these boundaries are breaking down. And this is a good yeah. thing. A lot of conventional scientists would say, oh, this is bad because stuff gets watered down. No, it just means that you can join dots that you didn't even know there, where there were dots previously. Sure. That's, that's good that you point that out too, Greg, uh, because, you know, you could talk outside alternative. You could talk mainstream academia and you can talk about the mathematician is not talking to the physicist and the physicist is not talking to the chemist, you know, and, and that's just known to be the case. They've got their own discipline and they don't step outside it. Same as archaeology, not talking to anthropologists, like, you know, they just do their own thing and, and nobody talks to anybody. But I've noticed that, that hap that's happening inside alternative history too, that the archaeoacousticians aren't talking to the archaeoastronomers and, and why should they, you know, they've enough on their plate, they're doing it in their spare time. It's not like they work in this field it's something they do extracurricular activities and i see that more so in the acousticians now here's my angle on it a lot of people kind of have flocked to stonehenge to investigate this acoustics thing and, and i know you sent me the bbc documentary on that which is great and i see mainstream grabbing a hold of it but largely acousticians are a branch of physicists physicists and uh, they deal with the branch of acoustics and 
that's great. They've gone and studied Stonehenge, but they haven't put it in the grand grand scheme of things. I've noticed that probably the the biggest problem with acoustics is they don't they've done their research and that's great. It stands to them. I'm not speaking in derogatory terms here, Greg. You know they've done a wealth of of research, but somebody else has to come along and take. Oh, right, you guys did the acoustics and you guys did the astronomy. You know, let's put this together because these are like uh, a megalithic civilization with two very advanced technologies. Let's put this together, like you know, and, and naturally, my work's gravitating toward that, and my work's gravitating towards that because I've got these two phenomena inside the one monument, and so does Stonehenge. But you don't get archaeoastronomers of Stonehenge and acousticians of Stonehenge going putting these two together, and why should they? Because it's only one monument. Whereas I'm looking at the grand scheme of all these passage graves, and I'm looking for anomalies that match up with each other. And I give you one example: you got the Carrow Keel monuments in the west of Ireland. I don't know if you're familiar with them, Greg. In, in the town of Sligo, it's the nearest city. You have two megalithic complexes there: Carrowmore and Carrow Keel. Now, the Carrow Keel complex has got some very advanced astronomy up there. It looks like they were tracking the Cassiopeia constellation and probably me- measuring precession of the equinoxes. Um, and this is the passage grave cosmology I talk about. Um, you need to be into the subject of archaeoastronomy because these guys talked astronomy. They studied astronomy. They watched the skies over long periods of time and they mapped them like. So you have to kind of get into astronomy to understand even some of what these guys were doing. But, you know, the acoustics is there, too, and you can't get away from that. Like, you know, but the thing is, it's, there's evidence like that. Uh, one of the Carroquille, Karen G, it's got a light box similar to the light box at Newgrange, and nobody remarks about that. So you have an engineering feat of design present at one and also present at Newgrange. It exists nowhere else in any other passage graves other than those two passage graves. I don't know of any other two passage graves, and I've been to a lot of passage graves, more so than anybody else I've ever met or talked to or investigated or researched. Um, I'm sure there is somebody else out there who has an obsession for passage graves like me, but... uh, I don't know if anybody else has talked about these these two uh, light boxes like. So that's another uh, facet of these engineering design features appearing in two locations, but not in others. Just passage graves in between these places. So it's not like this this theme started out somewhere and spread. Again, I, all roads head back to a civilization being decimated somewhere and having to restart again. And I think boats just hit the coastline and they, they took what they could and they started again. So then you turn and go, did we lose something? Did, have we lost? Did, did they just try and incorporate their acoustics technology and their astronomy te- uh, know-how into ancient monuments and start again? Did they just try and just like embrace what they had again and, and get it back on the land, get it back in the landscape so that people wouldn't forget about it? Like, you know, I mean, if you, if you lost your civilization from rising sea levels, you're going to want to start again. You're going to try and salvage what you could. Um, there's a lot of popular movies have gone into this Prometheus and uh, the other one with Denzel Washington and 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 saving the Bible, the last King James Bible. Like, I don't know if you've seen that one. Like, so this is a popular cultural uh, thing in movies. Even like, you know, if you're going to lose the civilization and you get wiped out, you're going to want to start again. It's a natural human trait. Like, and it looks like this is what happened. This is where the megalithic civilization came from. Now. I don't like to go too deep into that territory because I don't feel the need to push back the boundaries 
to a 10,000 BC area, although that's where it looks like it came from. I think the evidence for an Atlantean 10,000 BC civilization is mounting. You've got the works of Graham Hancock, who's researched sunken uh, monuments all around the world. And indeed, there's a sunken... Uh, a sunken stone circle found off the coast of the Orkneys quite recently, Greg. Now, this, it's not too below the water level. Uh, this is only recent, like uh, about a year ago. Um, so the evidence that it's only 10, 15 metres, I mean, they may have just had to keep moving inland with rising sea levels and starting again. <laughs> Sounds familiar when you look at some of the local news reports of people's, you know, the back wall of their house falling into the sea. Again, down on the Devon coastline, um, and, uh, not the Devon coast. Yeah, is it Dev- Devon's got the worst tides in the world, I think. Uh, it's eating the coastline alive. But then you got the, is it uh, Somerset? Uh, you got the the coastline being eroded, and literally, in another hundred years, those houses and gardens will be gone. They'll be just eaten alive, like. So again, the geological landscapes keeps getting reevaluated from uh, erosion and sea levels, but. You also have this other thing uh, in Brittany as well. You've got a stone circle that's half in the water and half on land, which then tells you that the stones were erected when there was no sea levels there, and the sea level has encroached into this standing, uh, or these standing stones that are in a stone circle. So then that pushes it back to a sea level coastline problem, which is good because that's got a geological time frame on it. And in the other digital publication that I have, the Hidden History Secret Science, I've actually gone into the Atlantis as Antarctica problem because a lot of people think that Antarctica is 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 Atlantis like that. It's that Atlantis. Uh, we had a shift of a, of a polar shift, and that the continent of Antarctica got shifted into the polar region because, and that the Siberian Peninsula got shifted into the uh, North Pole region. Yeah. So basically basic Atlantis, uh, I've read about this, Atlantis at one point would have been on the equator, which would chime in with its, its idyllic sort of uh, location and climate, and then it got shifted to the, uh, the pole. The polar regions. I don't think it would be as dramatic as a 90-degree shift like that, Greg. And, and I'll tell you why. I, people think of the Earth as a, as a per- perfectly circular globe, but it's, it's an oblique, it's an obloid shape. That is, and it's, it's like a, a flattened beach ball, if you want to call it that, at the, at the poles. It's almost oval shaped like an egg, but it's like uh, circular around the equator. So for it to shift like that, it's not like a, it's not like the skin of an orange, although a lot of people describe it like that. It'll be the skin of a melon, if you want to call it, because a melon be obloid like or egg shaped. So it would be very hard for the equator to go to exactly the North Pole. But yes, for intensive purposes to explain it like that, yeah, it may have only been a thousand mile uh, shift. But that's enough to take it into warmer regions, into polar regions. Now, the ex- evidence for that is uh, Hapgood, uh, Charles Hapgood would go into that. And there's evidence of palm trees being fossilized in, in the Antarctic region. You also have uh, woolly mammoths frozen with fresh buttercups in their belly, uh, fresh vegetation. So they were eating fresh vegetation when they got frozen. They they couldn't walk out of there from the blizzards that came because they were shoved into a Siberian peninsula very, very quickly with fresh vegetation in their belly. So there's evidence to back this up. I mean, uh, every year that when, when the thaw, permafrost thaws in Siberia, they watch out for woolly mammoths because they're the best thing to peer into that time frame. Um, so again, uh, it's, it's, it's another theory of Atlantis. Now, I've gone into uh, Hapgood's th- uh, work as well, Charles Hapgood. He was endorsed by Einstein, by the way. Or Albert Einstein endorsed Charles Hapgood's work. 
But the one key thing that a Hapgood does go into, he, he he looks at ancient maps and uh, he looks up the the shift of that pole, the polar shift problem, which is magnetic and geological. Now, let's just stipulate that there's a magnetic shift in, in the pole and there's a geographical shift in the pole. In fact, the, the pole's moving even as we speak. Again, just to bring people up to speed if they're not familiar with it, the, if you look at the look up, you know, North Pole moving or whatever in Google, you'll see how it's so significantly moving now. It's affecting navigating systems because they're affecting Ge- geomagnetics. Uh, and gy- Gyroscopes, you mean? Yeah, and well, and similar systems, so much so that there's a number of airports now that have had to physically move, correct, correct. reorientate their runways because the runways are no longer where the uh, the plane's tracking system is saying that it should be. Yeah, the, the pole's been wandering for a while now and, and it's, and it's in, re- in recent years that it's, it's actually really noticeable. Like, There's evidence, I mean, it, it goes off in tangents and tangents and tangents. I mean, there's evidence that the sunspot cycles could control the magnetic core of the Earth. And um, by feeding into the poles through where what we know as the aurora borealis, yeah, that's it's a polar phenomenon because the poles are open to uh, leaking the, this solar radiation. Like you know, you, sunspot cycles affect earthquakes too. So there is geological, geomagnetic, scientific evidence that the sun, the magnetics, geographical and, and geomagnetic pole shifts. Like you know, it's. It's it's a whole branch of physics and science and unto itself, like. But uh, I think some of the key thing is just to get back to uh, BC timelines as the Hapgood's work typifies from ice core samples. Now he's looking at the maps, the maps of Antarctica, because there's maps of Antarctica what it looks like underneath the ice. When was it ice free? Geologists say a million years. Hapgood says as late as four thousand BC. Now, bit of a difference there, like, <laughs> but. You know, there's ice core samples saying that there was rivers flowing on Antarctica at about 4000 BC. Now, ice core samples can be proven. And the reason they know that is because the ice cores contain sediments that are typical, finer sediments are, that are typical that are found in riverbeds. So ice core samples, sediments, rivers flowing, climate change. You see there's a su- succession of uh, investigative uh, scientific research there that leads you to rivers flowing means not frozen landmass. So it's quite a blocks of evidence taking you for, to back to a journey of discovery almost. So I like Hapkud's stuff. You know, he's, he was he'll be remembered for his work long in about a hundred years from now. I reckon. You know, he was a pioneer of his day and he was way ahead of his time. And it's, it is important that Albert Einstein and, and back then. But the key thing he pointed out was 10,000 BC era and 4,000 BC era two very significant timelines on the planet of the Earth. So we don't know what happened in, in our distant past before 1000 BC. We have no idea. We have absolutely no idea other than inclinations before 3000 BC. We can only speculate on fragments of evidence, you know. But the fragments of evidence are alluring. Let's just say that like, Greg. Now, talking about the a lot of the megalithic uh, constructions, monuments, and the uh, passage mm-hmm. graves orientation around uh, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Sure. Uh, it leads me to sort of a general question of why uh, so many ancient cultures, if not all of them, seem to have this obsession with what's going up in the heavens. Now, a lot of people say, well, it's because of basically, you know, spiritual, spiritual or religious ideas, you know, because that, that's where the gods are and what have you. And of course, there's a lot that ties those ideas of the gods into you know celest- actual celestial bodies. But perhaps 
uh, in some stuff that you were talking about just a moment ago, uh, we've spoken about uh, you know solar flares and cosmic waves and uh, other you know meteors, comets, etc., etc., etc. Perhaps they deemed, maybe with very good reason, that the heavens were a place worth keeping an eye on. Just a, a short comical answer. They had no TV, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, I mean, it, this this was their education of the day. They, these guys were scientific people. I don't mean they were sitting there with complex computer programs able to analyze the way things we do today. They were scientific in their mind, in their intuition, in their knowledge. They passed it on to each other. They didn't feel the need for a material-based civilization other than to incorporate into stone monuments. You, I mean, they watched the heavens like, yeah? They were aware of acoustics. Now, they could have discovered acoustics for many reasons. They could have studied water waves. They could have studied and applied it to sound waves. They could have been aware of that. There's many reasons how they could have discovered things. I mean, watching watching the heavens over long periods of time, you will figure out long cycles. I mean, you will notice, first and foremost, that you've got the seasons. And then you've got the seasons, but you've also got constellations that disappear and reappear again. So you've got winter constellations and summer constellations. There's evidence that these guys were calendar building and they were doing several calendars. They were doing a 16-month calendar and a 12-month calendar. The 12-month was based on the moon. Um, again, the moon is a very, very complex thing to figure out. The sun is the sun is nothing. The sun is like shortest day of the year, longest day of the year, especially at the latitudes where the pasture graves are built. Um, then you can further break that into the spring and autumn equinox. Days of equal, uh, the length of the days of uh, waking day, the sun, the sunlight day is of equal length. So you can break the sun into sun, solar year to four quarters. Like so, they just were exploring and exploring in deeper cycles of time from natural observed phenomena. They just kept building on it, and they just went, "How far can we take this?" Now they did it without. The telescope presumably <laughs> they did it without they just did it with their know-how they did it with their intuitive knowledge so you know when you start compiling research on more research on more research that's what we do today in science greg we compile research on what's been done before that's what research is you go on the you stand on the shoulders of giants like you know people don't start researching the same thing over and over again you're not going to get anywhere you build upon some other theory and you use it to explore another aspect and that's exactly what they did. They were they were scientific in their minds. Something I, I should bring probably bring in, the Newgrange Acoustics Mystery is my sequel book. And you brought up the spiritual aspect, and that's why I want to bring that in, because these guys may have had a different route into this, Greg, in that I, I, I explored for a couple of reasons. I, I, I wasn't sure whether they had uh, gone into altered states of consciousness because of acoustics or because of hallucinogen... Uh, plant products, whether that's psilocybin mushrooms or the Egyptians had the blue lotus flower. Um, there's, there's a variety of things out there. I mean, the ancient uh, uh, Aztecs, they had a uh, peyote, cactus, uh, they had mescaline, they had a variety all around. There's ayahuasca in, in the Amazon. There's a variety of hallucinogens uh, around the planet. The Ibogaine in Africa, again, which is one of the most intensive. It's even more intensive than uh, ayahuasca in Brazil. It's a 24-hour physically draining. It can actually kill you almost like, um, which is even prescribed to uh, uh, heroin and cocaine addicts in the UK. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. It's a hundred, almost 100% success rate. Yeah, uh, Graham, for... Graham, Graham Hancock's done a lot of stuff in this area. Sure, and that's kind of where my acoustics research kind of 
uh, one route into that was from Graham Hancock's work. He, he's so he's gone into the supernatural aspect of it and explored human consciousness, spirituality, uh, through a hallucinogen route. But he also explained that you know it's not the only route because you can do it through acoustics. And if you go into an acoustics chamber, you can do it through infrasound, where basically you can get acoustically induced into another state of consciousness because the the brain works at about 7 to 15 hertz and if you can get acoustics like a beating drum at 7 hertz you can go into an altered state of consciousness because of acoustics you can also do it through fatigue uh, this, the sand tribe in uh, South Africa they march around for 24 hours around a fire and they collapse with fatigue and go into it in complete exhaustion do it that way there's many vehicles to get to the same uh, end result the same journey like so I wanted to go into this uh, acoustics element of the passage grades because I was well aware of it. Uh, there's a book wrote in 2001 called Stone Age Soundtracks, and I was uh, well aware of an acoustics research, but largely it was, I wouldn't say rushed, it was like there was a short time frame on the book when and they had researched some places in the British Isles in England and Ireland, like, and there's many places they omitted. And I wanted to go and look and carry on that research and and further it and see where it would take me and I was because I was aware of it and I was going around to do the passage graves anyway for the archaeoastronomy the efficient engineer in me Greg went okay let's do some acoustics testing some acoustics monuments too because I've been to 75 of the 100 passage graves of Ireland I didn't want to go and do that journey all again Greg so that's the efficient engineer wanting to nail down some research it, it was it was like a beacon to me to go and have a little look at that too I didn't know where I was going with it and it was quite a laborious task and I thought it was wasting my time. I thought it would just it would be data and research because I researched many things that I don't write about. Uh, and I thought it was just another stuff that would sit on the desk and never be looked into. And how wrong I was because uh, I discovered more links to the Dogon tribe and, and Dogon mythology of acoustics. The Dogon have weird uh, links with astronomy too. Um, and the Dogon uh, rock art that they are sorry the Dogon art that they have and their symbology is indicative of the rock art of passage graves as well. So this is a very, very complex picture we're trying to build here. So, you know, I have to go at this from three different angles. I've, I've done the archaeoastronomy. I've done the archaeoacoustics. But then the rock art both backs up the astronomy. It both backs up the uh, acoustics, uh, acoustically induced. But it also kind of has links with the Dogon tribe and, and uh, their symbology too. So, you know... We're, given, we're, we're developing a different picture and we're not relying on archaeologists for it anymore. The archaeology has just left us in a stalemate, in a stagnant mould and people have to go outside it. And Most of the discoveries are coming from alternative science and alternative history. But the key thing I should say about the spirituality aspect is that I think they could have got knowledge from acoustically induced or uh, entheogens. It's just to say there's rock art that is typical we never got into much of the rock art, Greg, and uh, it's it's a whole it's a whole discussion in itself. It's a whole radio show in itself. You wanted to talk about the rock art, but the rock art that I go into in the book, I specifically target the stuff that I think is important that it's it leads to a line of discovery. And I mentioned it in the in the book because I I was aware of it at the time, and I and I said, look, there is rock art that's indic indicative of entoptic phenomena, and I was aware of entoptic phenomena which associates with altered states of consciousness from Graham Hancock's work. In fact, when I read Graham Hancock's uh, work on entoptic phenomena, I seen rock art that was typical of new Grange uh, motifs of chevrons, spirals, concentric. There's like about 40 different uh, images. And I just seen new Grange rock art looking at me. And I went, wow, 
you know, that's, I don't see anybody researching or writing about that. That's a really hot topic for me. I've got to look at this. I've got to consider this when I'm going to do the astronomy, like, and so the, the key thing is, like, you know, there's, there's rock art separate from the astronomy, and then there's rock art that's depicting constellations and calculations and, um, you know, so it's it's a very complex picture. Um, and again, that's why I'm trying to group this as archaeoacoustics and archaeoastronomy, because there is a natural grouping process there, yeah. You know, and, and there's links to this Dogon tribe. I mean, if, you, if you've seen the new book, and, and you will do soon enough, Greg, that it looks like these guys had a spiritual aspect. They were intellectual. They were scientific in their mind, intuitive knowledge. They were figuring out complexities of life and, and wonder. It was, it, they didn't have it all figured out. They weren't like, a, a, they, they were, it was a wonderment to them. It was an exploration. They, they still had research topics in their day. They didn't just build all these monuments to simulate stuff that they knew. There was a research element going on too, Greg. The stuff they had figured out, they used. They used the solstice to typify a day of the year when they knew they'd be looking at the same constellations. Okay, that's great. They had the solstice hammered out. That's an easy thing to figure out, Greg. I mean, you can look at uh, the sunrise on the horizon every day of the year, and you'll see it naturally migrate from left to right. And you could be able to go, well, that's its most extreme point on the left. That's its most extreme point on the right. That means that's the summer solstice. That's a long day. That's the summer winter solstice. That's a very short day. Oh, right. That's the longest day of the year and the shortest day of the year. And that's the extremes. And then on the spring and autumn equinox, the sun rises on the same point in the horizon every year. So there's natural ways how these guys figured out the solstice. But they used this day. They used these four segments of the year. They could uh, look at the astronomy, the more complex cycles. They, there's evidence that they even noticed an eclipse in Loch Crew in, in County Mead. And uh, they could have noticed the stars after the eclipse had gone down. There was an eclipse at the time that Loch Crew was built, typically around the time that the alignments happened at, at, at Loch Crew Carnell. Uh, think about it, when the sun goes down and you've got an eclipse, the stars and then birds come out and, and they think it's nighttime or, or dawn, like, you know. So they could have noticed the constellations there and then disappeared again. So they could have got a window into what they were doing. So that they knew that the stars and the, the sun did this thing. Like there was a natural discovery pro process there, and that's why I always try to point out: don't try to put. You I mean you got to look at this thing in terms of high tech, high science, highly advanced, sophisticated knowledge. But there's a natural discovery route there too. Don't think that it's like fanciful to put these guys as advanced, and when we're advanced, and they had to do it, and we didn't do it that way, and you know. You know, some people need to see that natural discovery route to believe it. Um, so I like to provide that. If I see a, an answer or see a discovery process, I like to try and provide that. Well, James, as we begin to bring things to a close for today, um, I'd just like to say something about the significance of the stars. Because as you mentioned, a lot of uh, megalithic sites connected to specifically to the sun and the moon. But also, as you say, some of them where people have said, oh, well, the alignment or the positioning of this is of no significance because it doesn't relate to the sun or the moon. You've then pointed out, well, actually, yeah, but it does to the star system. Uh, I mean, Sirius, for example, uh, is mentioned in the title of your book, just to remind people of Newgrange, Sirius Mystery, but also um, other constellations and entire systems. I mean, Cygnus comes up, the Pleiades. So what is the significance of all this, do you think, for these people? I mean, specifically megalithic, because it's difficult to, or maybe we can extend it to, 
We know, can, yeah. We can, it? yeah. That's a good point, you know, because time and time again, the same constellations come up all around the world. Uh, the Egyptians were st- uh, obsessed with Sirius. So was the Dogon. Um, and that's again, th- let's just say what the Dogon link to the book is, because that give you an answer and a route to other cultures, because Sirius turns up time and time again. So does the Pleiades. The, uh, the Mayans were obsessed. Their, their Tikal complex is actually the same ground plan as the constellation of the Pleiades. Um, the same constellations come up time and time again. It's the Ursa Majors, Cassiopeia. You know, the important thing about the Pleiades is at that time in 3000 BC, it rose in the east and set in the west. Uh, and, you know, east and west was also when you get the spring and autumn equinox. So it was naturally there. It's an artifact of the skies. Now it's about 45 degrees off uh, east and west, like northeast, northwest. Uh, so, you know, it's it's in a different locale today because of precession has knocked it out of sort because it's had 5,000 years to do that over a 25,000 year cycle. So at the time of construction of these monuments, there's a, probably a natural reason why the Pleiades was there. But again, the Dogon talk about the Pleiades as well. So these same constellations come up time and time again. Is there an astronomical theme for building that? The Dogon have knowledge of the star system Sirius. They are purported, purportedly not to have had telescope like. Although uh, Robert Temple likes to go into that in his book, the the Sirius mystery again, which I mentioned in the book. Uh, it's where I get the Dogon element from, and the, I mean their art typically typically represents. They have a thing called a sun wheel. Um, which is basically looks like the a wagon wheel, like a, a spoked wheel on a wagon's carriage, like a, a circle with spoked wheels on it. It's typical of the rock art of, of Doth and Loch Crew, and it's also typical of ancient Egyptian art, and it all meant the same thing. It meant an astronomical concept of the heliacal rising, the rising of the sun, and then drowning out these star constellations very, very quickly as the sun rose on a special day. So they have the same art depicting the same complex astronomical themes. So again, these ancient cultures are more linked the way we think they are. Um, and there's evidence in that in the rock art. There's evidence of that in these astronomy. And I think they singled out these constellations for very specific astronomical themes that were at play. My route is all roads head back to the Dogon. The Dogon are a living tribe today. And there's enough evidence to link that now uh, and there seems to be obvious evidence that they had knowledge of acoustics too. And Gavrida's passage grave has long been purported by mathematicians to be very complex mathematical art where it's showing the coalescing in, in, of waves. Now, whether they're water waves or sound waves, people can't comprehend sound waves. But here's another natural line of discovery. Perhaps they had smoke of incense or inside the passage graves. And when they were beating their standing waves inside the uh, passage graves... Maybe there was smoke or incense or frankincense being burnt inside, like, and you would see the standing wave. You would see a zigzag pattern in the air, lit, quite literally in front of you. Yeah, you'd see it emanating out of the, uh, the the light box. You would see a sunbeam coming in and the sound wave coming out in terms of a sine wave zigzag. You know, it's not as fanciful. There's there's natural lines of discovery there. Maybe they built these passageways with an accidental design and then discovered the. Uh, acoustic waves i don't think so i think there was a a different discovery process there but i'm just saying like you know there's natural lines there's there's many ways of discovery there you know you don't need to concentrate on that you just need to follow the science and the data first and uh dogon links with egypt the dogons are linked with the megalithic civilization 
and you know it's 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 more of a complex puzzle than we think and and all ancient cultures in the world have some common hand of influence some common hand of knowledge at play well it's fascinating james and there's so many points that we didn't even get to but uh that will keep for another day but perhaps just in closing you could uh tell listeners about your websites forthcoming projects just anything you'd like to share really Sure. Well, you know, we'll get into that, Greg. I'll send you a copy of the Newgrange Acoustics Mystery when that's out. Um, and as I say, it's a follow-on book that, like, it's it's another journey of discovery that follows on from the Newgrange Serious Mystery. Um, so if anybody wants to get the book, you can go to the website, which is newgrangecosmology.com. Um, it's all linked up. All my websites and all my projects are linked up at jameswagger.com. That's jameswagger, two Gs for swagger.com. Um and I've got my own Capricorn Radio podcast there. Um, that's CapricornRadio.com. Again, everything's linked up at the one homepage, JamesSwagger.com. Um, and I'm doing a special on uh, the New Grain Series Mystery for the next two months. So uh, any listeners want to grab it there. I have PDF versions for those that want to read it. I have uh, Kindle versions out. Um, and again, the paperback uh, is available on Amazon US and Amazon UK. And I may be doing a tour later on in the year. I don't know. I, I keep getting asked. I, I did do some tours and I'm doing some tour books and guidebooks uh, concentrating on the specific megalithic cemeteries. Um, they're short guidebooks. They're going to be relatively cheap. Uh, and I've done web pages because I'm getting asked to do it. They want to know what my version of events are for these because they know that I've researched a lot of them. And, you know, I used to do, do, do uh, tours as favours to... Uh, a friend of mine and uh, so I'm developing some websites for them uh, they're all again they're all linked up with jameswagger.com so I've about five websites in the progress of construction this year so I've got some interesting work ahead of me Greg so. excellent busy man and look forward to getting into that James once again thanks very much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com sure it's a pleasure having me uh, Greg and uh, thanks for all your listeners too well that's it for another week I very much hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, I'd urge you to check out the website, which is legalizefreedom.com. That's legalized-freedom.com. And there you'll find an archive of many other shows on many similarly fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>